Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Tonight from Matthew chapter 2, we're going to engage our last reading of the origin stories of Jesus in all four Gospels. We have read by tonight just about all the material there is from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to pick up the remainder of the infancy narrative from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In uh, Bethlehem of Judea? For so it has been written by the prophet, and in this case they meant Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. So Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when that star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go. Search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that uh, I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and in this case he means Hosea, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. 
take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod, well, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. And church, the source of that prophecy is entirely lost to us. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In which you discover just how angry I really am, and I reveal my dalliance with Botox. It's patently absurd, utterly enraging, and who could have seen it coming? A government leader ensconced in a public palace who everybody knows didn't so much climb the rungs of the ladder of success with determination, skill, and commitment to principle, but instead scrambled and clawed his way to the top on the bent backs of inherited wealth, business cronyism, vulgar displays of material excess, heartless exploitation of workers and lovers and, yes, his own children, and such an inflated sense of self that it's probably diagnosable. And when this sorry excuse of a man gets word that there's another one coming, the inevitable next one, the one who will replace him in the consciousness of the people he thinks of as his own capital, his own property for his own gain, as soon as he realizes that he can't be top dog forever, his ruined imagination goes down the rut he's been running his whole life. Destroy the competition, whatever it takes, never mind the collateral damage. He doesn't so much want to win as he wants to never have to play by any rule other than his own twisted sense of entitlement. 2,000 years ago, this man's name was Herod. I don't know what Matthew would have made of our nativity scenes with the baby sleeping soundly on a bed of sweet-smelling hay, an angel competing with a star for center sky, a parade of polite guests mixed in with assorted docile farm animals with a moo-moo here and a ba-ba there. Because Matthew badly wants us to understand this baby is born on a dark and stormy night, at least literarily. A dark and stormy night that from his very origin decides and defines who he will be for us. This is a story only Matthew will tell us, and I have to say, on this 40-fucking-third Sunday of Coronatide, when mad and sad, rage and grief are in the 10,000th overtime of the wrestling match they have embedded in my heart, I am weirdly grateful that he did. He gets it. He tells it like this. Sometime during Jesus' baby into toddler years, a realization arrives for Herod the Great, that A, his kingship is temporary, and B, 
He is not in charge of who comes next. People are saying there's a new king in town, or at least nearby. And Herod the Great quickly morphs into Herod the losing his shit. He lies and dissembles in order to coerce loyalty. He thoughtlessly incites violence unto death. We can well imagine that he dismisses anyone who might dare to suggest that his tantrum disguised as a plan is too costly, too morally bankrupt, too heartless, even for him. If we dared, we would add to our tabletop crushes the death count that night. The innocents whose lives meant so little to the commander-in-chief who had sworn to protect his citizenry that he never even asked how many because he did not care to know. And if we dared... We would add to our rotation of carols, the one sung originally by Jeremiah, the one in a minor key about Mother Rachel and the deaths of her children. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. We'd have to go a long way to understand Matthew's poetic and political illusion there. Several empires before Rome, actually, all the way back to the 6th century BCE and the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, when Jeremiah literally watched the deportation of prisoners of war, God's chosen people again enslaved by the hungers of the wealthy and powerful. And to catch up with, with Jeremiah's poem, we'd have to roll back a few hundred more years all the way to Israel's blessed origins, the 12 tribes of God's beloveds, the descendants of Jacob's sons, some of whom were also his cherished Rachel's sons. And we'd have to remember that Rachel was buried, according to tradition, in Ramah. And then we could return with new understanding to that deportation in Babylon with Ramah, the staging ground for Rachel's children's long forced march into captivity. And if we did all that work, well, then we'd have caught up with Matthew and we'd have our new carol, the minor key moaning mother, the strained sounds breaking free of her broken heart, the keening of grief, the wailing and loud lamentation that many of us white bread white folks have never let escape our own throats for fear of losing our minds to the grief and the rage, the sad and the mad, the flood of feelings that could drown a person if she let it. A cello in the hands of the right musician could do it, Nathan. Maybe you'll write it for us someday. We don't know exactly how long the Holy Family stayed in hiding from Herod's narcissistic rage, themselves refugees now, without citizenship or rights in the land of their ancestors' originary enslavement, Egypt. But it was long enough for Herod the Great to pass from this life to the next. And while I don't believe in an eternal lake of fire for torturing those who oppose God, 
I do suspect something like a refining fire that burns off the parts of us that aren't fit for God's good future. Perhaps God's own impossible brightness scorching our pride and privilege and prejudice away. Which would mean that Herod the Great is even now Herod the Greatly Humbled. Whatever's left of him, forever apologetic for his ruinous earthly sojourn. I admit that's something I'd like to see. Though I suppose that part of me will not survive the refinement either. God gets what God wants, even from me. Damn it. Anyway, one Herod dies, and two take his place. His sons, Herod Antipas in the north and Herod Archelaus in the south, not to mention the other son, Philip, who was kind of the Peggy of the Herod family. It'll be Antipas that Pilate tries to pawn Jesus off on in 30 years or so, citing a jurisdictional technicality. It'll be Antipas who, like his father, cannot extinguish a threat to his throne. Jesus' whole life, from birth to death, he'll be hounded by the Herods. I think that's the local lesson of Matthew's narrative, that Jesus makes powerful people nervous, at least, murderously angry, at worst. We who follow him closely, we who pledge allegiance to him, bring your hands to your heart in a posture of devotion. We who call him Lord and renounce all other loyalties, including a rejection of patriotism, of democratic capitalism, of family values, and even family under certain circumstances, of religion, of any ideology that demands loyalty to a way of being that is in competition with being fully human the way he was fully human, we who are his closest companions we should be made to understand, Matthew thinks, it's a dangerous way to go. It was always thus. I think Matthew could not have imagined followers of Jesus in any age who would glom on to politically powerful people, who would turn a blind eye to the moral vacuousness of an unscrupulous potentate in order to secure their own privilege. I think he would have raised his voice in howls of rage and grief with Mother Rachel, inconsolable at the atrocity of it. Heresy, Reverend Dr. William Barber called it in an interview last week, heresy, the kind of so-called Christianity that uses, quote, religion as a cover for greed that refuses to acknowledge that, quote, systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism are interlocking injustices, end quote, that demand Jesus' followers to oppose them with every ounce of our strength and at some considerable risk. Wailing and loud lamentation, I'm saying. Let us refuse to be consoled, I am saying. We who have endured over 350,000 deaths among our near neighbors in 10 months at a rate accelerating needlessly while our so-called leaders bow down to the economy and the myth of individual liberty. 
we will know the count. And we will honor everyone as best we can. And I think Matthew's narrative has far beyond the local lesson of Jesus' on-the-ground threat to political power. Something much bigger to say. Matthew started it when he brought in those mysterious wise men from the East for this story. Wise men is what we say when we don't want to admit there are astrologers kneeling around that baby boy. That's what they were, astrologers, reading the signs of the night sky and assigning transcendental meaning to what they charted. They didn't just happen upon a star guide for their westward hoe journey. They were seeking understanding of the world as they knew it, reading the signs and plotting their life journeys accordingly. Now, listen, I am not a fan of contemporary astrology, as I have reason to think it's mostly a scam perpetrated mostly on the poor and the insecure. But I am a fan of these astrologers from the East in Matthew's account, mostly because they're just not supposed to be there. No angels have been assigned to invite them no religious texts have informed their journey. They don't know their Hosea from their Micah. No ancestral longings for a Jewish Messiah have been passed on through their generations by story or ritual. Furthermore, they have no earthly advantage to gain by packing their camels with star maps and weird baby gifts and traveling in and out of weeks and almost over a year just to pay homage, which is a weak-ass translation that should be more like fall prostrate in worshipful obeisance, to place oneself in right relationship, not with a political authority to whom allegiance is demanded by virtue of citizenship, but with the king of kings, the cosmic Christ, the one whose reign knows no geography, no geopolitics, no racist racial superiority, no border fences, no earthly citizenship. The one whose sovereignty is recognized by the very stars of the universe. His law he enforces the stars in their courses and sun in its orbit obediently shine. If only the Herods had known this one or any of the ones who came after him, that it doesn't matter how many deaths you accrue to your account. It doesn't matter how many you can get to follow your orders. It doesn't matter how many years you stay in office because what's happening in that little family, that poor, disgraced, displaced little family is so much bigger than you. To put it another way, you are so very, very small next to the one you seek to obliterate. You're lucky we remember you at all. I have already confessed it. I came into this season with a deep well of rage and grief to draw from. I have been alarmed at how sad and mad I can be over such a long time. But Matthew, he comforts me here the same way the Psalms of Lament can be a comfort 
when we suffer all manner of sorrows. I have told almost no one that in 2018, when I was on writing leave from Galileo Church, I had some time on my hands, time to try something I'd been curious about for a while. $200, she said, would soften that divot between my eyebrows, my personal mark of resting bitch face. I would not look, she said, so concerned all the time. I thought, concerned is a nice way to put it. And that was before the shit show of 2020. When she asked if I had any questions before the tiny little injections began, I could only inquire, am I going to hell for this? She laughed and said that was above her pay grade. I said, mine too. $200 later, I suppose I did look less concerned, less mournful, less enraged, less like Rachel, inconsolable at Rama at the inexpressible loss. But I only did it that once. It turns out, for me, that's a stupid, selfish way to blow $200. But more than that, church, I am concerned. I am so fucking concerned. I'm okay with looking like it. Matthew says, don't stop too long at the stable, Christians. Follow the family, like wise persons following the stars. Watch them closely with God's help. Watch them dodge the threats to this baby's life, while other families without adequate warning learn to live with the unimaginable. Understand the machinations of power, but don't be alarmed by them. Sing with Mother Rachel, but don't be afraid. Be as mad and as sad as the body bags call for, but don't imagine that death is winning. See the blood run in the streets. Don't turn away, but raise your eyes to the heavens where the countless stars are signaling the salvation he brings for all of us. The lucky and the broken, the refugees and the despots, the grieving and the raging and the oblivious, all alike. And bend the knee, Christians, pay him homage like all wise persons who can read the signs. This is the hope of every land, just as the universe expands, he's holding everything. He's holding all of us. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal 
or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.